be true to yourself, have confidence in yourself, work hard, get involved, and never turn an opportunity down. Hello everyone and welcome to the Student Lawyer podcast series. Whether you're at school, sixth form, university, thinking about a career in law or exploring law careers, you're in the right place. We are the one-stop shop for student lawyers. If you'd like to join the student lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. Hello everyone, welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast. My name is Stephanie, I'm a future trainee solicitor and the host of today's episode. Joining me today is Fenella Fogarty, Head of Restructuring and Insolvency at RPC. Fenella specialises in advising banks, insolvency practitioners, funds, corporates and all stakeholders of insolvencies on both contentious and non-contentious restructuring formal insolvency and turnaround situations. During the episode, Fenella explains the reason she became a restructuring and insolvency solicitor, what is meant by restructuring a company, and the main roles and responsibilities of a restructuring and insolvency solicitor. Fenella also discusses Wilco's collapse into administration, reveals the current commercial issues that aspiring solicitors should keep abreast of ahead of their vacation scheme and training contract interviews, and provides very useful tips for training solicitors. Fenella, welcome to the Student Lawyer Podcast. It's wonderful to have you here today. Thank you, Stephanie. Pleased to be here. Wonderful. So I'm going to um, get on with the questions because I've got quite a lot to ask you. I was wondering if we could kick off by, um, well, if you introduce yourself and the area of expertise that you specialise in. So my name's Fenella Fogarty. I am head of the restructuring and insolvency team at RPC. I have been specialising in restructuring and insolvency for just over 20 years now, and I lead the team there. Interesting. Um, So what were the reasons that you decided to become a restructuring and insolvency solicitor? To be honest, I think I I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. But when I embarked on my training contract, I don't think I really knew which area of law I wanted to go into. And the firm where I trained, we did um, a four seat rotation in those days. Um, And really, it kind of happened just by chance that I started off um, doing or being introduced into a seat in insolvency. And what attracted me to it, I think, was the real um, sort of sector agnostic scope of it and the fact that you're able to do contentious and non-contentious work. So you get a real nice spread of transactional work with contentious work as well, if that's what you want to do. And when I say sector agnostic, we work with all sorts of businesses across all sectors. Um, So one day I could be in with administrators trading um, a high street retailer. Another day we could be dealing with a distressed oil and gas platform. Um, There's all sorts of things that you come across. Uh, The weird and the wonderful Formula One teams, all sorts. Oh, that does sound exciting. So I'm going to be starting my training contract in 2025. So I know it's so early for me to start thinking about the seats that I want to do, but I'm I'm quite sure that I want to do a seat in restructuring insolvency. There's just something about working with businesses and 
and helping them out of distressed situations and helping them um, build that kind of like attracts me to that practice area. I think something like that or M&A where, yeah, I think it is that kind of like helping businesses grow and develop and succeed, uh, which really, um, yeah. Well, you see, businesses come to us at all different stages of their cycle. Um, And it might not be necessarily that they're on the verge of insolvency um, and that they're just about to go into administration or liquidation, as you hear in the press. So they can come to us a hell of a lot earlier on. Um, And that's not always reported because usually at that time they're looking at maybe a refinance or a restructure of their business um, to streamline the operations or to make them more profitable. So it's not, you know, it's it's not that it's recorded in the press. But it's an interesting world because you also get involved with lots of different stakeholders. So um, within my practice area, you could be acting for the bank that's lent money. You could be acting for the directors who have borrowed the money on behalf of the company. Um, sometimes you're acting for old family businesses. Sometimes they're big corporate chains. Um, so there's a lot of competing agendas often in the room. Um, and there can also be quite a lot of emotion in the room because depending on where they are in that scale and that cycle and whether it's a small family run business or a large corporate um it 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 can be um a job that you need to have i think quite a lot of empathy for Um, but that said um it's quite an exciting world you never know what's going to happen from one minute to the next um from you know you you pick up a call and all of a sudden you've got a food retailer that needs assistance that is on the verge of a winding up petition um you're looking to do maybe a short M&A process um so you never know what's going to happen from one day to the next um you have to be commercial though and I'd say yeah you have to be definitely empathetic do you think there's um so you mentioned commercial just a moment ago is it mostly um, a commercial kind of practice area would you say um, yes. So as I said, we can, there are the transactional elements to it, which is very similar, I suppose, to doing a corporate seat. Although if you're acting on the side of insolvency practitioners, you wouldn't give any warranties or indemnities or undertakings um, generally, uh, which you would do in terms of a corporate, a straightforward corporate transaction. Um, but within the work we do as well, there are often, well, we say when when the work turns into a formal process, so an actual insolvency event happens and office holders, insolvency practitioners are appointed, um, often they can um, have need to go after assets that maybe have been dissipated from the company or sold at an undervalue, or there may have been some wrongdoing from the directors, um, or they may have to go to court to seek directions in relation to the process in which they're involved in. So there are contentious elements to it as well. Um, so it gives you a really nice spread. If you know, I, I mean, of course, I would say it's my practice area. But if I was a law student going in again, I would probably choose the same area again. Um, and it's such a shame. Certainly in my day when I did the LPC, I think we covered it off in about 15 minutes in a corporate law lecture. Um, so it wasn't until I got into a firm uh, and into a firm that was well known in its day for its insolvency practice um, that I actually did a I did a seat in insolvency, which in those times sat within the um, commercial litigation team. And it was mainly contentious insolvency. I worked on things like Bearings Bank. And I remember sitting in the Royal Courts of Justice days on end. Um, and then I did more of a restructuring type transactional seat within their corporate group. Um so yeah, and, and now as a partner, um, I, I do a little bit of both, to be quite honest. 
And, and often within the same transaction, there can be, or, or, or within the same matter, there can be need for transactional work as well as contentious work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you say that you're biased towards restructuring and solvency, you know, it's your practice area, but um, at the same time, you're obviously a person that they, um, has a commercial mindset and also somebody that likes variety in their day and likes dealing with different kind of people. So I think that if, you know, aspiring lawyers can um, resonate to that, then uh, restructuring and solvency practice area is definitely a practice area that's yeah. worth thinking about. I think you've got to be practical. I think you um, need to get ready to sort roll your sleeves up and really get involved with the clients, whether they're on the director side or whether they're the professionals on the insolvency practitioner side. You really become part of the team and part of the team of wanting the best outcome uh, and usually certainly in the insolvency arena that's the best outcome for the creditors as a whole so it can be late nights it can be weekends not always um, but there is something incredibly interesting in getting involved in somebody else's business effectively and having to help them make commercial decisions um, and sort of guide them through the pathway to the best outcome yeah. for the creditors. Excellent. Um, so, for which I've told you're advising. Right. So for, um, for those that are not quite sure what restructuring and insolvency actually are, would you mind just um, explaining a little bit about the difference? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I suppose we probably would have been helpful to do this at the outset. But we're um, So as I said, restructuring is usually um, earlier on in a business cycle where uh, they're not looking at immediate um, and dire sort of cash flow issues. So they could restructure their business, as I say, to streamline it in some way, to make it more profitable because they wish to move it in a different direction. Um, Or they might be going through effectively a financial refinance and, and taking out one lender, putting another in, or there might be new investors coming on board. So that tends to be, as I said, more on a confidential basis. Um, you won't find it necessarily sort of front page of the national press. Um, And they will be working with professionals, financial advisors and lawyers to look at um, the best outcome for for making that a better business effectively. So that's at a very high level. That's what a restructuring process will be. And within that, there are formal court processes that companies can go through. But effectively, that is outside of the the more terminable things like liquidation certainly that's at the absolute other end of the scale where there's no hope for the business any longer it will go into a liquidation process and effectively the the business ceases to trade and the assets are set effectively sold off um, to the highest bidder for those assets whereas administration is more of a, a medium process where you can return the business as a going concern um, and that is always the first purpose and objective of the administration but more often than not, we see a, either a pre-packed scenario um, whereby the business is marketed and sold effectively upon administration, and that's to preserve value, or administrators can be appointed and the business is traded for a while um, to find purchasers for all or parts of the business, uh, as happened, I suppose, most recently in co administration. Would you mind explaining what um, some of the main roles and responsibilities of a restructuring and insolvency solicitor is? Oh. Keeping, I suppose, with, with any lawyer, um, keeping your client on the right track, protecting their position, no matter whether it's the board of directors, whether it's the lender, 
whether it's the insolvency practitioner. I feel as an R&I lawyer, you are there to help and assist them make the commercial decisions, create a strategy with them. You need to know where they're heading, what is the outcome that they're wanting to get, and then help them um, from a commercial perspective as well, and very much with a commercial hat on, um, get the best outcome um, navigating um, the law at the same time. So as I said, you, I, I feel certainly as an R&I lawyer, you absolutely become part of the team that you're advising. Yeah, that's really good to know. Thank you very much. For the past four years, I have been very lucky in the sense that I have had the shoulders of friends and family to sob on and unfortunately for them to vent at whilst I have been under pressure and stress from university deadlines and whilst going through the gruelling process of training contract applications and interviews. They have been my unofficial therapists and during tough times have reminded me that there is always light at the end of the tunnel. But it's not always possible to rely on a friend or family member to help you through difficult times, especially if they are not trained therapists. And sometimes speaking to somebody outside of your family or friendship circle is a better option anyway. If you're going through stressful times, looking to improve the quality of your life, vent or need somebody to remove the weight of the world from your shoulders, BetterHelp, the sponsor of today's podcast, may be right for you. BetterHelp is the largest therapy platform in the world and it changes the way people approach their mental health and helps them tackle life's challenges by providing accessible and affordable care. The therapists at BetterHelp are qualified to help you through everything from daily stresses to anxiety, relationships, depression, addictions, eating, sleeping, trauma, anger, family conflicts, grief, self-esteem and much more. After you sign up, BetterHelp will match you to a therapist who fits your objectives, preferences and the type of issues that you are dealing with. So whilst a friend or family member, aka an unofficial therapist, is great to speak to, therapists on BetterHelp include psychologists, family therapists, licensed clinical social workers and licensed professional counsellors. Visit www.betterhelp.com forward slash TSL for 10% off your first month. That's www.betterhelp.com forward slash TSL for 10% off of your first month. I know that I'm looking forward to using BetterHelp to help me get through the SQE when I start it next year. So you... Um, mentioned the Wilco case just a moment ago and um, before we started recording this podcast episode you mentioned that there's been some updates to the uh, case this week Um, so I was wondering if you could um, before we talk about the um, administration case a little bit more if you could just explain to the listeners what were the main commercial issues that uh, may have caused Wilco to fall into administration so I didn't act in relation to the Wilco matter. Um, so uh, sort of any discussion that we have is is on that basis. And really, it's only from things that I can, um, I have learned through years of experience or, or things that have been recorded in the press or our, our sort of legal journals. But, um, you know, Wilco had a huge amount of stores. I think it had something like 400 stores. It had something like 12,000 employees. Um, and I think it really was one of the casualties of the high street retailers that are seeing high rents, high business rate, um, increase in the cost of living, which is impacting consumers and consumer spend. Plus, with 
increased energy costs, it just gets extremely expensive for retailers to have significant presence on the high street unless they are really well capitalised. Um, and from what I understand it, PwC, who were appointed as the administrators ultimately of Wilco, did run effectively uh, an early options process to try and sell the business before it went into administration. Um, unfortunately, that was unsuccessful and no bidder was willing to buy it pre-insolvency. Uh, the difference is once a business goes into administration, effectively all its liabilities crystallise at that point and effectively the unsecured creditors can be left behind um, in terms of their debts may not be paid and insufficient funds may be recouped effectively to pay them. There wasn't It wasn't a completely sad story though for Wilco because the range um, picked up a number of the stores, Poundland picked up a number of the stores um, and I suppose the most recent update is on that is that five new Wilco stores will effectively reopen before Christmas. Uh, and they were some of the ones that were bought by the range, who, as I understand it, also bought the band. So they will be branded as Wilco stores going forward. Okay. Um, and I know that they're also working on their online presence at present. Um, and then I think there's another 19 of the 70-odd stores that were bought by Poundland that are also going to open before Christmas. So these are other businesses that have come in and effectively just either taken the brand and some of the sites or um, some of the sites and will reopen under their own brand. Do you think that's a successful kind of like, do you think that's somewhat of a successful story? It is, yeah. I, I think, you know, it's a good outcome. Yeah. Um, the best outcome is obviously to save the business before it goes into an event of insolvency and for everyone to be paid in full. Um, but no, it's a great outcome that we haven't got gaping holes again in the high street um, for, from Wilco not being there. And that the Wilco brand, which has been around for years, has been saved. Yeah. So do you think that I know that you mentioned um, PwC want to do an early option um they would have run some form of early options process, a, a distress type M&A process, whereby right. you go out to um, a list of people, investors or, or other companies that they would expect would be interested in maybe buying the business. And usually what they do is put out a teaser on a no names basis in relation to whichever business is distressed. Um, and they will effectively market the business initially on a no names basis. Um, interested parties that they think are viable to purchase or to invest will then sign non-disclosure agreements before any confidential information is disclosed. Um, and the best option is obviously to, to sell or refinance a business um, before it goes into an event of insolvency. So do you think that um, Wilco could have prevented like falling into administration at all? if they made use of somewhat of a restructuring plan earlier in the year or last year or, you know, two years ago, whatever. It's really, really hard to say, sort of, as I said, not not acting on the transaction and not being party to it. Restructuring plans um, are on the increase. You, you may or may not be aware that they were brought in during COVID um, by the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act um, in 2020. Um, and they have been used. I think... As of last month, there have been something like 20 or so that have been successfully used, not all in the pure retail arena. I think the last one that was within the, the sort of pure sort of high street retail world was Clinton Cards. 
And that was eventually sanctioned in August at the end of the summer. And they exited from 38 of their shops as a result. But um, I've also, and I have been actively involved in one that that didn't work with landlords. And it, it really depends on the restructuring plan, how you class your categories of creditors, I think as to whether they have ultimate success or not. The use of the CVA, though, is probably a more traditional way of dealing with landlord creditors. And that is certainly on the increase um, at the moment. Um, so, yeah, we are seeing the use of the CVA and potentially it's probably a cheaper option as well to use in order to restructure. Um, although as restructuring plans are becoming more commonplace, the cost point will change to a certain extent, but they are more of a court driven process. So you would need to not only have um, solicitors instructed, um, you also have to have barristers instructed and it is very much a court timetable process. Um, versus the CBA, which is largely an out-of-court process. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know too much about CBAs and restructuring plans, but when I have looked at um, commercial news stories and businesses have gone into insolvency and I've tried to figure out, oh, how could this business be saved? And I've looked at CBAs. I do think it's a good option. It's whether or not the creditors actually want to accept it and whether they feel that um, there's any benefit to that. So, um, yeah, I suppose if uh, Wilco had all these uh, hundreds of stores and thousands and thousands of employees, whether or not um, something like a CV would be appropriate for for Wilco but yeah the the different types of restructuring plans I think are interesting and there's ways in which um, these businesses can be saved but yeah I just suppose it depends on the creditors and what they want to do and it ultimately depends on the level of debt and the conditions that are attached to it yeah yeah yeah. so given the rise in online shopping and the competition on the high streets do you think that other discount shops there, such as Poundland and maybe BNM could follow in Wilco's footsteps? Well, first of all, I'd say let's hope not. Um, the high street is dwindling. Um, I'd certainly expect, and again, I have no visibility on either of those. Um, I don't act for either of those businesses. But on the basis that Poundland has just acquired um, a huge amount of the Wilco business, um, I would say that we're probably fairly safe there. And I, I, again, I don't know how they are financed. Um, but on the basis that they are in acquisition mode, I would suspect not in the near future, at least. Uh, and, you know, no doubt they have, you know, strongly negotiated their rental positions on on entering into the new stores that they've they've purchased. Yeah. I mean, if it was me, they would be out of business because I literally do all of my shopping on Amazon when it comes to stuff like that. So, I mean... That that is the changing face of the high street. And that's the problem that lots of retailers are facing. Um, but with that come different problems as well in terms of cash flow. You know, we've been speaking to businesses whereby um, they know that the orders that they get don't equate to what ends up in the bank account at the end of the day. Because most people, certainly if they're buying clothes, will order two or three sizes online and they know that they're going to get one or two of those items back, particularly if people buy, you know, identical items. Yeah. Um, there's the cost of po- postage. Uh, and I know some businesses have started to charge for return par- parcels now at the lower end as well. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's getting, you know, the footfall to the high street again. And then it, stores have looked at alternative things like having flagship stores, having experienced stores to get people through the door. Um, but I suppose for the everyday, for the stuff that the pound lens of this world carry, 
your your bleaches and your tins of biscuits and things like that. It, it's still very much something that people do tend to pick up on the high street, I would expect. Yeah, that's good to know. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so how do you think that aspiring solicitors can excel in their training contract interviews and then subsequently during their training contract? Once they get to interview stage, and obviously you have to get to interview stage, um, I, I would probably give the same advice for the application phase as well as the interview stage, is you need to stand out. When I'm involved in recruitment processes now, I see lots of CVs where the results are fantastic. Um, they've been to gig universities, um, brilliant universities, some of them, um, all straight A's, first Duke of Edinburgh awards. Um, so you look at what makes that person a little bit different um, and you very much look for the individual. So don't be afraid to be a little bit different, to be a little bit quirky um, and to be true to yourself, I think. Results, unfortunately, now in law are a given. You have to have good. So to make you stand out, it will be the way you present yourself and um, the way you differentiate yourself from other people. And again, when I look at, you know, trainees and we're on a six month rotation at RPC, you look at the ones that do what I personally look at, the ones that will not be afraid to share an opinion, will want to be involved, will ask questions, will want to understand the background of a matter so that they can add value. You know, we... We take on individuals, um, not all straight from law school. Some have had other careers, short careers before they've come to us from, from different walks of life. And, and that really brings another point of view. And I think as a trainee, you shouldn't be afraid to share that point of view. Uh, and so to do that, you need to understand the, the background or you need to understand a strategy and you need to understand how the pieces of the puzzle fit together. Um, so very much see yourself as part of the team and not at the bottom rung of the ladder. Thank you. I think that's really good advice. I mean, as I said, I'm yet to start my training contracts. And I, from speaking to people, uh, mostly from the podcast and um, in the business that I work in as well, I know that when they, um, when they hire trainees, they're hiring them for their unique self. Like there's hundreds of people going for these um, for these training contracts, and only a, a small percentage are chosen. And they're they're hiring that individual person, and I know that they want that person to bring their unique self. Yeah. Um, so I hope that when I start my training contract, I keep that mindset because I can appreciate that once you're in there and you know you're with your cohort and you're under you know, time pressure and and you're in a quite stressful environment, I hope that I can kind of just remember that and remember to ask those questions. But, um, yeah, it's always great to hear when uh, it's always great to hear people like yourself saying, you know, ask questions um, because, yeah, those stupid questions that get talked about, then most of the time they're not so stupid, not if you've thought about um, what you've got to do and you've still got questions but yeah I think yeah. it's a balancing act when you're when you're very new into a role like that I think times have changed though I, I mean when I was training 20 odd years ago um, there was a real hierarchy in firms uh, I was lucky one of my seats I did I worked very closely with the partner that I worked for um, 
And we had a good relationship. And I think I really benefited from that. But I knew when not to ask a question as well. I knew when to leave the door closed in those days. You know, people would tend to be in offices with, with doors closed more often than not. Um, the world has changed. It is a far flatter um, team now. Um, I, and for example, at RPC, we all sit in an open plan area. We're on a bank of desks. We're very conversational. Um, and... I would expect generally a trainee coming in, their first point of call will be whichever associate they're working with on a job. Um, but I like to think that I certainly make myself, I think that is now more of the adopted way uh, for partners to interact with everybody in their team. So things have moved on and things have changed. Um, and I find that you absolutely get the most out of people um, because whether they're, you know, 20 or 40, um, they, they have something to add and, and, and something different to add. Yeah, absolutely. But everybody's gone through a different walk of life and they will be able to think in different exactly. ways and, and, you know, give different opinions and perspectives on things. So do you advise that trainees do that if they're interested in doing restructuring insolvency seats? What seats do you recommend they do that in? I mean, is it quite a complex seat where they need to have a little bit of experience under their belt? Or do you think it depends on whether they actually see themselves qualifying into it? Well, generally, the rule of thumb is if you can choose, the ultimate seat to do is probably in your third seat. Choose the team that you think you want to qualify into. That doesn't always happen. I remember how stressful it was being a trainee. Uh, when you put your first, second and third choices down, you speak to the HR team um, and the day that the, the results are released, et cetera, as to where you're going to be and being incredibly disappointed if you don't get your seat of choice. Um, it doesn't matter, though. To us, we take into consideration where somebody is in the cycle of their training and we will also take into consideration how they've performed, obviously, in, in their other seats. So it's not a bar to them qualifying if they do our seat last. It just gives you, I suppose, a shorter amount of time to shine within that seat. That said, also, we've had, you know, first seat trainees that you think this person is absolutely fantastic. have smashed it out of the park. We would love to have them come and join us. Um, and then sometimes they go off and do something else. Yeah. So I don't think it matters. But as a rule of thumb, in a perfect world, your third seat is the seat that you should be aiming to to qualify into. Thank you for sharing that. But also, the one thing I would say, be very open with the team. Right. Don't okay. just funnel it all through HR. If you're interested, be confident in that interest. Make that known from an early stage because if there are extra things you can be involved in, you will be involved. If you look like you're wanting to qualify somewhere, for example, anyone that shows particular interest in my world, I make sure I get them all out to all our marketing events. They meet our clients as soon as possible um, and they really get under the skin of the practice area and, and involved in it. Um, and then I know that that person's interested. So when it comes round to that time, I might say to each other, oh, what about so-and-so? They showed a real interest. Brilliant, they're on the list. And it starts to be in our contemplation. I love that piece of advice. Thank you for sharing. Because I, I do always think that if you put yourself forward for things, whether they're challenging or not, you open doors for yourself. So, like, I just am a big advocate for, yeah, putting yourself out there and, and you know, don't be backwards in coming forwards because 
offering yourself out to different opportunities can only put you forward in life I think when you're giving yep. when you're giving 100% of the time when you're giving 100% even if you don't get things right I think that the fact that you're showing that you want to take on responsibility I think um, means a lot so yeah thank you for sharing that what, in your opinion, are the current commercial issues that aspiring solicitors should keep abreast of ahead of their vacation scheme and training contract interviews? Well, a big one for corporate commercial lawyers, really, I suppose, is our changing economy and where our economy is going. You know, insolvencies are 10% higher than they were a year ago. Um, the statistics on insolvency have just come out and financial distress seems to be up by 25% in the last three months, interest rates still to be sticking. And I think, you know, the advice is that they're likely to be there for the next year. Um, So a watch on the economy, um, the changing geopolitical um, situation as well, and start to think about how that will impact business in the UK. Uh, Russian sanctions, all of those types of things, because they are changing our practice areas. The other big one is AI and the impact of AI. That's a huge topic at the moment for law firms, how that will change legal advice going forward and issues around the implementation of AI, how that changes the way we advise our clients, the streamlining process to that. And so the advantages and the pitfalls of it. Um, so I say that's another key area to to read up on and, and just be alive to. Excellent. So one of the well, one of the questions that I um, have been asked in two training contract interviews um, is what is the best way for a lawyer to win and retain business? And I just really like this question. I don't know why. So, yeah, I wanted to ask you, in your opinion, what is the best way for a lawyer to win and retain business? So, again, I think knowledge of the law is pretty much a given Yeah. Um, when you get to a certain level. So it is about partnering with your client, being that go-to person who is on the end of the phone to discuss strategy, to answer the silly and the not-so-silly questions, to really become part of that client's wider business whether that's, you know, an individual at the client or, or a wider corporate. Um, to, so to pretty much make yourself part of their team and to really get under the skin of the business and understand what their goals and objectives are, I think probably that is the key to winning and certainly retaining your clients. Relationships are key. Um, and to a certain extent, it will it also depends on how you interact and you get on with your client on a, on a human level, but just partnering well. So really, really understanding your client's business. Absolutely. And, and taking care of your existing clients. And, and, you know, to the certain extent, so somehow sometimes you might be working with an in-house legal. You right. want to work with them to make them look good as well. To, to help them come back with solutions to problems that they might have been faced with. So at every level, it is working as a partnership, understanding the goals, taking time to ask questions, taking time to keep that relationship up. Even if you're not working on anything at present, ringing them, how are things going? What's new with this? 
Have you thought about doing this? Can I introduce you to someone else at the firm that can support you with your employment issues or any tax advice? Thinking a little bit, putting your head into the mindset of their business and trying to almost work out things that they might be interested in before they before they realize themselves. Yeah. So strategizing with them and partnering with them. Yeah. Love it. Thank you. Um, so we're approaching the end of the interview now. So I have my final question, and that is, uh, what advice would you give to your younger self? It's a difficult one. I trained, as I said, 20 odd years ago, um, and it was a very different corporate landscape at that time. So I don't know whether it would have worked as well for me, but I think be truer. I should have been truer to myself, to who I was. Um, had more confidence maybe in myself in those days so I think that would it so yeah be true to yourself have confidence in yourself work hard get involved and never turn an opportunity down fantastic I mean I can't imagine that you this lack of confidence if you want to put it like that lasted very long seeing as though you've done all the fantastic things that you've done and you've made it to the point in your career where you're head of restructuring and insolvency of an incredible law firm so you must have shaken that off very quickly Fenella. I don't know I think we always we always have self-doubt doubt um but I try to do things that push me out of my comfort zone and I would say certainly in the world that I work in where we could be working with any type of business as we've said doing anything on a daily basis from a range full range of restructuring to insolvency there are usually always scenarios that I come across that I haven't dealt with before um, and you have to pull on the experience and your knowledge of the law and the experience that you've gained on a commercial basis but there are often things that I go into that are outside my comfort zone right um, and it is just taking that deep breath and doing it because if you don't try, you don't know. Um, and pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone is a good thing. And I suppose I wish I'd maybe had the confidence to do that a little bit earlier than I did. That's you know, also been very lucky over the course of my career that I've worked with some great people, um, some great partners as I've come through in some really strong teams. Um, and most importantly, I have a really strong team around me. Um, and many of the people that I work with, I've worked with for years. Um, and it goes back to the fact that we all have a good, strong relationship, a good, great working relationship. Um, everyone has their strengths and their weaknesses, um, but we work well together as a team. And that's really key. You spend more time with the people that you work with than generally your family. Yeah. Um, so team is key. And that's also a really important decision factor in terms of not, and it shouldn't, certainly shouldn't be the only decision making factor in terms of where you want to qualify, because it's got to be the area that you um, are interested in. Um, but it's really important to, to qualify into a team that you enjoy spending time with. Thank you for sharing that. I think that is incredible advice. I mean, I've had the kind of like qualifying to a practice area where you um, form good relationships with another the number of other people and I think that's like having a team around you where you feel comfortable and confident to be you know your unique self is really important but also I think that certain practice areas do um, attract a certain type of person so I think that's definitely something to bear in mind yeah <laughs> 
You're absolutely right. Which is why I think that I'd be quite well suited to restructuring the solvency seat. So I'm really looking forward to um, to doing that. But thank Good. you. Um, well, are you able to share where you've got your training contract? Yeah, of course. So um, I'm starting at Clifford Chance. Brilliant. Yeah, I'm really looking Fantastic team. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, good luck with that. Wish you all the best. Thank you. Enjoy thank you. it. It's an amazing world to work in. I'm really excited to, I've still got to do the SQE, but I'm really excited to um, first of all do that because I really, now that I've got the taste for education, so I had a career before I um, went to um, do my LLB. Yeah. I didn't take school seriously at all when I was, you know, doing secondary school. And it's not until I started doing my LLB where I really got a taste for education. So I'm actually very excited to get stuck into the SQE because I know it's going to be much more practical than LLB law. Um, But then, you know, when I start my training contract, I can really actually start um, working with solicitors in... Yeah, and applying your knowledge. Yeah, exactly. So um, I'm looking forward to the journey that I've got coming up. Um, but thank you very much for um, those mm-hmm. kind words. And thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for explaining the world of restructuring insolvency and explaining what a solicitor in this practice area does, talking to us about you know these current affairs and then also providing really um, useful advice on how aspiring solicitors can um, get into the world themselves. And thank you for taking the time out of your incredibly busy day to speak to us. We really do appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you, Stephanie. It's been lovely talking to you. And you. And thank you to everyone for tuning in to another episode of the Student Lawyer Podcast. And we will see you back again here next time. To hear more of the Student Lawyers Podcast, hit the subscribe button and leave us a star rating and review. If you would like to join the Student Lawyer as a writer, please email hello at thestudentlawyer.com. Don't forget that if you're looking for a way to remove the weight of the world from your shoulders, the therapists at BetterHelp are qualified to help you through your daily stresses. Just visit www.betterhelp.com forward slash TSL for 10% off of your first month. That's betterhelp.com forward slash TSL for 10% off of your first month.